Welcome everyone. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Paolo Drino. I'm based here at the Institute and I help to convene these um, seminars in Latin American studies. Uh, and this evening, uh, it's a um, great pleasure to have Rosalind Howard uh, from Newcastle University to talk about, as you can see here, language rights and indigenous people uh, in Peru, the articulations of Germany. Rosaline is um, the chair in Hispanic studies at uh, Newcastle and um, uh, one of the, the world's leading authorities on indigenous languages in, in Peru. And so I'm really looking forward to, to what you have to say. So Thank you. Pass it over to you. Thank you, Paolo. Thank you so much for inviting me to give this talk, to have the opportunity to tell you about the project we're working on in Peru. And thank you so much for coming along, everybody. Uh, we are creating a website for the project, which will be published quite soon. So if you'd like me to send you details of the link for that, you just put the name and your email on here, and I'll make sure you get back to that. If you, that is quite um, optional, <laughs> if you'd like to have that information. <clears throat> OK, so as Paolo has already announced, and as, as you've seen from the abstract on the... Um, Institute website. The title today is Language Rights and Indigenous People in Peru, New Art Articulations of Hegemony. This paper is part of a much wider project, which is a collaborative project being conducted um, between myself at Newcastle, uh, a colleague who is a specialist in, in community interpreting and translation, Raquel de Pedro up at Harriet Watt, and also Luis Andrade of the Pontificia Universidad Católica in, in Peru, Peru, who is um, a linguist specialist on the Andean languages. We work, we've been working on this project since October 2014, so it's now quite well advanced. In fact, our project end date is in sight in early June. And um, we've had great... Um, the project has had a great benefit from the fact that we have research partners in the shape of the Ministry of Cultures Indigenous Languages Division, or in Spanish, Dirección de Lenguas Indígenas, and also an NGO, um, the Servicios Educativos Rurales. <clears throat> the key question for my reflections today um, is as follows. Are the processes arising from the implementation of language rights legislation <coughs> currently you know, underway in Peru truly emancipatory, or are we witnessing new articulations well, I think I'll stay with that screen for the moment. I'm going to just read you a few um, basic reflections by way of opening the topic of language. Because, of course, here in the Institute of American Studies, um, and I, I imagine I'm speaking to an audience mainly, but correct me if I'm wrong, of Latin Americanists, perhaps Caribbeanists, in any case, um, it's, it, we're in a very multidisciplinary environment. So language is something that is of concern to everybody. Uh, whatever discipline we kind of associate ourselves with or most uh, sort of working within, language is something that cross-cuts everything. And especially, of course, if we're working outside an Anglo-speaking um, environment. Language is an essential component of any form of human communication and a potent tool in social and political interaction used to inform, argue, persuade, promise, prevaricate and deceive, aside from its many poetic and affective functions. 
Yet the language factor is often disregarded as a problem in the cross-cultural settings that emerge in a post-colonial country like Peru, where a strong ideology of Spanish monolingualism persists, despite the evidence of a multilingual reality. For language is a powerful hegemonic instrument. The ideal of linguistic unity was at the heart of nation-state building in Europe in the 19th century. That ideology carried over to Latin America and went unchallenged until the decade of the 1990s, when the paradigm of interculturalism began to take hold in successive administrations. The Peruvian state, alongside others such as Mexico and Bolivia, is working now to realise some of the ideals of interculturalism in the case of Peru within, from within the Ministry of Education and the Ministry of Culture in particular. Our research looks at the kinds of challenges and successes that are coming about through new ways of thinking, both at the top and at the grassroots, new legislation and actions taken to implement this legislation. <clears throat> so having um, given you that sort of bit of broad brushstrokes as an introduction, um, I'm going to spend part of the... Um, presentation to begin with talking about language rights as a principle and the kind of legislation that is being put in place in order to attend to people's language rights in Peru and indeed other parts of the uh, South America. If we think of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights from 1948 and have a look into Article 2, here we do find a reference to language Everyone is entitled to all the rights and freedoms set forth in this declaration without distinction of any kind, such as race, colour, sex, language, etc. However, and here I'm following a point made by Stephen May, a leading um, authority on language rights for, in, for minority peoples around the world, he notes how, despite the, you know, the values espoused by the, the United Nations Declaration, significantly for indigenous peoples, the UN Declaration does not specifically uphold people's right, people's right to be considered as part of a collectivity, but considers human beings only in their capacity as individuals. And this, of course, has implication for language rights, because language rights, in order to exercise your language rights, part of that is to demonstrate that you're part of a group and interactions within that group um, need to be, or are most effectively conducted um, in one language rather than another. I also want to give you a little bit of a feeling for the background, where we come from, because what's happening in Peru today, um, in, I can speak actually from long experience, because I've been working in the Andean country since the 1970s, uh, and I've seen how things have evolved in this field since that time. So um, really what is happening today, if we contrast it with where things started, where things have come from, um, there's quite a lot of, we can talk about quite a lot of advancement. So here, I've just taken a, a short quote from a very well-known Quechua text. It's the autobiography of a man called Gregorio Condori Mamani that was published in the 1970s in Cusco. And this book is the outcome of, um, of a long and close friendship that developed between two Cusqueño anthropologists, Ricardo Valderrama and Carmen Escalante, way back then, uh, they're still working in Cusco to this day, um, and uh, in their conversations with Gregorio, when he told them all about his life, he was speaking in Quechua, but I'm giving you here their Spanish translation, just of a little snippet 
of his memories of what it was like to be conscripted into military service um, and to be in the barracks in a very Spanish-dominant um, environment. He says, A Sierra se entraba al cuartel sin ojos y sin ojos se salía porque no podía salir con abecedario completo, correcto. Is there anyone here that doesn't know Spanish? Right. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll carry on and then I'll give you a brief synopsis in English if you don't mind. También sin boca entrabas y sin boca salías, apenas reventando a castellano la boca. Hasta antes de entrar al cuartel no sabía castellano. Ya en el cuartel mi, mi boca reventó al castellano. En el cuartel esos tenientes capitanes no querían que hablásemos runasimi. Indios carajo, castellano decía. Así a pura patada te hacían hablar castellano. So what he's saying here is that when he entered the barracks, he entered without eyes meaning that he didn't read or write. Okay, so this metaphor is a powerful metaphor to talk about being illiterate. He's, you know, as far as his idea is concerned, he, didn't, he was blind. Um, and he, you entered without a mouth. That is to say, you had no Spanish, you only spoke Quechua. Gradually, in the course of his time in the barracks, Spanish started to burst from his mouth. Reventar is the word to burst. But the... The people in charge in the barracks, he calls them the, the, the lieutenants, the captains, they didn't want the young conscripts, the Quechua-speaking conscripts, to speak their own language, which he calls runasimi, the Quechua term for Quechua, meaning the, pe the tongue of the people. <clears throat> and they would speak to them in Spanish. And here, you know, Gregorio introduces the Spanish swear words, indios, carajo, indios, buggers or fucker fuckers or whatever nasty English word we've introduced to equate to the word carajo, uh, which is actually relatively mild, I suppose, <laughs> compared to our equivalents. And then Spanish, castellano decían, a pura patada, kicking you, they made you speak Spanish. Well, what's, um, what I want to show you on the next screen is actually the original words that Gregorio spoke when he spoke Quechua. There they are. And what, what I've highlighted in red are that, in spite of the fact that he was speaking Quechua, many of, the, many of the words that he actually used were from the Spanish language. And if you know Spanish, you'll be able to pick up that the kinds of words that he uses, um, the kinds of Spanish words that he picks on and incorporates into his Quechua are words to do with the sort of Spanish system. In the very, in the very top line, the word cuartel is the word for barracks. Further down, abecedarios is where I'm referring to learning the alphabet. Um, and then uh, teniente capitán, the, the, the um, people in the, in the barracks. And then, as I said already, the swear words, which is very typical that swear words usually come from Spanish. And then apura patada, you know, this, this very violent expression of sort of violence of having the language imposed on him, expressed in Spanish. So that, that example, I've just used it in order firstly to just remind ourselves of you know, how bad things were, um, and also to, remind, to sort of give a sort of illustration, really, of how this whole process of language shift works. Because you know, Spanish, uh, Quechua becomes um, ineffective as a tool of communication when it's not allowed to develop itself internally by, by perhaps developing new vocabulary and so on, and the Spanish language kind of invades its space. And, and then gradually people will learn Spanish and then gradually they'll pick up the message that it's probably better they just speak Spanish and leave their own languages behind. All that is gradually, well, I would say, quite rapidly changing now. Whether it's too late for the languages to survive is another story. Okay, 
So my premise is that there's an inextricable relationship between language use, social inclusion, equality and justice, between language use, political participation and the exercise of linguistic human rights. And that in Latin America, in a situation where language rights are being infringed, human rights themselves are very often also being infringed. Because after all, language cuts across everything. In every situation you might find yourself, for example, in a court of law, in a police station, if you're not able to express yourself, express yourself sufficiently well in Spanish, maybe you do only speak your own mother tongue, or maybe you speak Spanish a little bit, but not enough. And that's a big problem because people think, oh, that's all right, they speak Spanish, but actually you may not really understand what people are saying to you. So all of that, you know, your human rights need to be respected in a police station. On top of all the other problems that might occur, as we can imagine, there's also the issue of sheer communication. So all of that is the kind of problem that the Peruvian government now is trying to address through legislation. Well, the um, somewhat inadequacy, I suppose, although of course it's a very important milestone, the, the UN Declaration of Human Rights, that the inadequacy um, in terms of language rights was partly addressed by the ILO Convention 169 in 1989 and also more recently the UN De Declaration on Indigenous Rights. We just remind ourselves uh, about some of the content of the ILO Convention, Article 28, um, num point number one there is concerned with children having the right to be taught and to read and write in their own language and that's something that has been addressed now since the 1990s across the Latin American region. I can give you details on that if you're interested. The second point, that people should have the opportunity to learn the national language and to become fluent in it. So obviously we're not, when we talk about language rights, we're not just talking about the right to have your own language recognised and somehow catered for, but also, of course, to acquire an adequate, adequate level of it, um, fluency in the national language or languages. Um, and then measures taken to preserve and promote. That's where we're talking about language revitalization programs and so forth. In Article 30, um, here, this is, this is one of, I think this is the article that really touches most closely on the initiatives that have been taken by the um, Indigenous Languages Office, which I'm going to talk about in more detail. Governments shall adopt measures appropriate to the traditions and cultures of the peoples concerned to make known to them their rights and duties especially in regard to labour, economic opportunities, education and health matters, social welfare and their rights deriving from this convention. So here we're talking about um, the facilitating people's understanding of what their rights are in matters to do with their interaction with the state, um, to have the same opportunities as everybody else in different um, public spaces. And the second point there, if necessary, this should be done by means of written translations and through the use of mass communications in the languages of these peoples. So, yes, translations, yes, the use of mass communications, which has always been very inadequate. You don't often hear an indigenous language spoken on the television or in the, in the radio and so forth. What, what's missing from that second clause, um, and I looked for it elsewhere in the convention, I couldn't find it, uh, uh, re regards the right to an interpreter. And of course, written translation is all very well, but when we're talking about populations who don't necessarily read and write, it's not the, it's not the whole answer. Um, when it comes to national legislation, which kind of grew out of the, the ILO convention in, in every state, there was a gradual process of ratification. Peru ratified 
um, I think in the same year as the Constitution was reformed in 1993, they ratified the ILO in that one, that 169. And we find in, um, well, I've written here, chapter, chapter 1, Article 2, Clause 19, I think it's also in Article 48, so you better double-check if you're interested in chasing that one up. All Peruvians have a right to their ethnic and cultural <coughs> identity. The state recognises and protects the ethnic and cultural plurality of the nation. All Peruvians have the right to use their own language before any authority through the medium of an interpreter. So that is the key, that last sentence is the key point that has given rise to a lot of activity in the present day that our um, project is looking at. There have been previous efforts to, um, to get a, a law on language rights passed, and uh, one of the most important efforts was in, nine, it was in 2007, when two Quechua-speaking congresswomen, Ilaria um, Supa and Maria Sumire, tried to get this law through the Congress. So they, they, they presented a draft, a law for the preservation, use, and diffusion of the Aboriginal languages of Peru, However, it led to a lot of problems in Congress, and eventually it was batted back, and it was never passed. Uh, if you know something about the political kind of circumstances in Peru at that time, perhaps you can understand. And um, there, there was, a, nonetheless, a tremendous public outcry, and it was not so much a, a, an outcry about the fact that the, the law was or the draft law wasn't accepted at that point in time, but it was more to do with the reaction of one particular Congresswoman, who, in a way, uh, well, I think may, some of you may have heard of Marta Hildebrandt. She's a, she's a linguist, she's a member of the Peruvian Academy of Language, and she has a very strong sense, as you'll see from this clip, about who has the right uh, to, 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 to pronounce as an authority on language. And she takes issue in the clip with um, Maria Sumire um, about the, the sort of viability of the draft law that they were trying to get through, yes. Okay, um, one of the key points in this draft law that they wanted to get through um, was to improve on a previous effort at a law from 2003 um, in which uh, the law stated that um, ab Aboriginal uh, they used the word Aboriginal in those days, now they don't use that black word anymore, there's, there's always these little changes in the discourse that go along and anyway, back in those days the indigenous languages were, were to be considered official in, these, in the areas of the country, in the zones, I think that's the word we use, um, where they predominate. In other words, if you're an Ashanika speaker, your language could be official as long as you were in an area of the country where Ashanika is spoken. As soon as you step outside that area, your language is no longer official. Having your language um, recognised as official is important because it's, really it's only at that point that you can um, demand that the tenets of the language law be applied. In other words, this, this um, right to an interpreter, you can only really cl claim that if, you, if, you, if your language is an, offic an official language. So what the two um, con congresswomen were trying to push through was the idea that Peruvian um, indigenous languages should be made official wherever the people are, which obviously makes sense because people move around an awful lot in Peru, and even more since 2007. One of the largest um, um, sections in terms of numbers of Peruvian, oh, sorry, of Quechua-speaking people in Peru today are located in Lima. And there's a huge Shipibo-speaking population in one particular area of Lima. So to have their languages only regarded as official when they're back home in the, wherever they originally came from is just like not... They objected highly to that. 
So this was the argument that had ensued, just to give you a taste also of the, the kind of heated debates, the, the incredible strength of feeling that on both sides of the argument. <laughs> Lady on her right is hasn't got the hasn't, hasn't got any legitimacy. She's got no authority to speak out on languages. She's the authority of language. She cites the fact that she's got 10,000 um, published copies of her book, um, La Lengua Culta, which is about Spanish. She's a, she's a, um, a specialist in Spanish. She's not a specialist in indigenous languages. So this lady kind of responds that she too is a specialist, she's a trained lawyer, and I mean, basically this woman is being absolutely rude, putting her down, really saying things like, each one, in, each one should stay in their place. Um, so it's, an, it, it's quite a remarkable public display of sheer arrogance and discriminatory attitude that this lady is, that this person is <laughs> um, demonstrating. So really, again, that's to give you um, a feeling of where things have come from. You know, there's been it's been a very long and rough, rough road to get to where we are now. So I think we need to constantly bear that in mind when we think, oh, <laughs> you know, how good how good is it in fact? Uh, well, let me just also give you a little bit more insight into the context. And do interrupt me if I'm not explaining things sufficiently. Obviously, I'm sure you're quite a mixed audience, and so some things will be more familiar than others, and I've got no objection to interruptions at all. <laughs> um, so the social-linguistic context, we're talking about um, 47, an estimated 47 languages identified um, across Peru, largely in Amazonia, but also in the Andes belonging to 16 different language families. So 
So many of those languages, when I say they belong to different families, if a particular language is um, thought to belong to a particular family, then within that family there will be lots of different varieties, or we could say dialects of the language. The word dialect in many parts of Latin America, including Peru, is rather a is considered not a very PC word to use people, people, because for so many years it was used to sort of put down the indigenous languages. You would hear things said like, you know, uh, well, we speak Spanish and those are just dialects. So one has to be a little bit careful using the term dialect. I, I personally think it serves a useful purpose as a sort of in a scientific sense, but it also has a, a, a considerable sort of ideological charge. So you have to be a bit careful with it. Well, um, UNESCO and other bodies have different ways of classifying the degree of endangerment of an indigenous language, and there are lots of different criteria that they apply. That's a few indications of how many of these languages are considered vitally endangered or seriously endangered. And although there is now a new law, which I'm going to come on to in a minute, in that new law it still specifies that the, the languages are official in the zones where they predominate. However, I think there's more flexibility around that, that kind of condition now than there was in the past. It seems to have got through without too much difficulty. You know, there, has, there was much more consultation with the indigenous people themselves when that law was drawn up. Well, um, just consider this map for a moment. Consider how it represents, albeit very schematically, the incredible linguistic and cultural diversity of the country. And then set that map alongside this one uh, from the um, Ministerio de Energía y Minas, which indicates the location of mining concessions in the Peruvian highlands where Aymara, Quechua and Hakaru-speaking people live. And consider it again alongside this one, which indicates the location of crude oil extraction concessions in the Peruvian Amazon. These maps are not terribly up-to-date, but it's really just to give you a sense of you know, this other side of the story, another important part of the whole context. In territories of the Shipibo, Conibo, Awapu, Mampis, Ashaninka, Ashaninka, and others. So clearly, there's a, there's a huge problem here, and I'm sure most of you are aware of how um, there has been a, a, an escalation of government-granted concessions to um, extraction indus extractive industries um, on territory, um, not well, which actually has been whose titles are actually owned by the indigenous communities. But I won't go into the detail of that, I expect you know it well from other sources. But there was an important tipping point, which ha is, has a special relevance for what we're going to come on to, and that was t July 2009, when there was a particularly violent um, confrontation in the northeastern Amazonas department uh, around the region of the town of Bawa, involving Awahun indigenous people, also Mestizo people, who came out and um, confronted, oh well, they, they it's a long story. Um, they were demonstrating, they were objecting strongly to the activities, the way of doing things of a particular oil refinery in the region. And it got to, a, it got to a, a point where there was actually a violent confrontation between police troops sent in and the local, com local population. People were killed. So this really did make the government sit up. And from that moment onwards, the new legislation was brought into place. So, we have an evolving institutional and legislative con context from then onwards. 2010, the creation of the Ministerio de Cultura. And then in 2011, 
firstly, the passing of the Lili Linguas. Now, of course, if you know your Peruvian political <laughs> history, you'll know that that was the year when Ollanta uh, Humala was elected president. Um, but it was actually, the law was actually drawn up by during um, Alan Garcia's uh, administration, kind of almost on the eve of the, of the election of the new president. So it was during the term of the new president, which is um, that end, <laughs> um, that, that this new law has been um, enacted, or, sorry, has been implemented. Now, in parallel with that law on language rights, we get another important law, which is the law on the right to prior consultation. So those two laws were passed almost simultaneously. The law on the right to prior consultation, I guess, was the one that, well, they were both important, but perhaps the law on the right to prior consultation was the one that was really triggered by what happened in Bawa, to, put, to try to put right the fact that um, the, the concessions on ex, um, oil extraction and so forth were being handed out without proper con consultation with the, um, with the communities concerned, affected by act such activity. In Article 16 of that law, um, it specifies the right to an interpreter in prior consultation processes. So really, it was this key thing that the government needed to put in place um, interpreters to respond to that requirement of the law. So in 2012, they launched from the Ministry of well, uh, yeah, it was from, sorry from the Ministry of Culture. They launched um, a tra training courses for people to train to be translators and interpreters in their, <coughs> in their own languages. Obviously, they were bilingual people um, to in to act in prior consultation settings. But the actual delivery now of these training courses um, passed to the Indigenous Languages Division, which was set up in 2013. So there's a little bit of a, a sort of moment when that division hadn't been set up. They started the courses and then they realised they needed, needed, needed the division. So um, this is just to give you a little bit more of the institutional sort of um, geography here. Uh, within the Ministry of Culture, you have the Vice-Ministerio de Interculturalidad, the Vice Ministry of Interculturality, and then over to on the right-hand side of the screen there, you can see the sort of organigram within the General Direct, the General Office of Indigenous Peoples' Rights. You have three different, um, what they call direcciones. I'm calling it an office or a division. Um, one for prior consultation or consulta previa. Um, one for the indigenous languages, these are the people who are, who are our research partners on the project. And then the, the one on the right, also, also very important, the, the Office for Indigenous People in Situations of Isolation and Initial Contact. <coughs> if you've got any questions, you can ask me afterwards as well. Okay, let's take a little bit of a closer look at the, uh, the Lady Linguas. I do apologise for not having translated everything into English, but I'll do my best to sort of gloss it as we go along. Just to give you a sense of what this, uh, this law contains. Article 4 is the one on the rights of all, all people. Firstly, to um, exercise their linguistic rights in an individual and a collective way. This difference between individual and collective rights becomes very important, as I mentioned before to be attended to or served in their own language, in their mother tongue, in offices and state, well, state offices, to have um, 
translation services in both directions, both from their mother tongue into Spanish and the other way around, which will guarantee the exercise of their rights in all spaces. So there the, the reference there is to the fact that these rights sh should particularly be um, observed in public um, in public spaces, in public, um, what's the word? Social services and public services. <clears throat> Number H, to receive education in their mother tongue and to have their own culture taken into account in a sort of intercultural way in education. And the, the, the one at the bottom there, to learn Spanish as the language of common usage in, the, in Peruvian territory. So that, all, all of these, um, are, you know, throughout the Ley the, the, the Lenguas and also the law of prior consultations that made very explicit, these laws are the Peruvian sort of response to the ILO Convention of 169, Convention 169. Okay, they're sort of picking up on what it specifies, what it sets out in Convention 169, and then building that into domestic law. Okay, that's an important point. Um, I mentioned about official languages already. This is what it says in Article 9. Um, as well as Spanish, the, the, the Indigenous languages are official languages in the districts, provinces, and regions where they predominate, um, as it sets out in the National Register of Indigenous Languages. It's a huge database which was compiled by the Ministry of Education, which lays out where all the different languages are, their numbers of speakers, and so on and so forth. But there is still always that condition attached. It always, there always is that little thing that says where they predominate. So it, it introduces... Um, a sort of ambivalence, an indeterminacy into the, into the language of the law. Um, there's a, a particular writer that I've um, been looking at on this subject about the language of the law, what legal language is, how it's, you know, how it's constructed. John Joseph, I don't know if you've heard of him, he's a, he's a critical social linguist, he's quite sharp, <laughs> and he, he was talking about this idea of indeterminacy, how the language of law is indeterminate. And I certainly think that this, this phrase... En donde predominen, where they predominate, where they predominate, is absolutely ripe for being interpreted as it suits the person who's reading the law, if you know what I mean. Okay, so how does the the government then set about implementing the the, the language law? It's got about twenty four different articles. So I'm just showing you a couple there. Uh, key things that they've been doing. This is since the year, as we saw, two thousand and twelve. Training courses in translating and interpreting indigenous languages, raising public awareness of linguistic diversity and the nature of language rights, and translating the text of the law into the full range of indigenous languages in the country. On that third point, they've already translated into 17 different indigenous languages, um, that 20, those 24 articles of the text of the law. I'm writing an article on how they did that and what it, how it worked. And I won't go into the detail here, but um, hopefully you'll be able to read it when it gets published. Right, um, well, a little further detail on the training programme, as I already explained. It started off very focused on prior consultation, the consulta brevia. These are just some posters advertising the different, pro, uh, different courses. When they um, advertise them, they... they, they um, and when you think in Spanish, there's, there's a convocatoria, a summons, of, I don't know how you say that in English, sort of, you know, they, they advertise the fact that there are going to be the courses and invite applications. Uh, so the first, the first few were for consulta previa, and then they broadened things out. From the new 
Indigenous Languages Office, they were able to then say, right, well, actually, you know, interpretation and translation are needed in all sorts of different public services, in the judiciary, in the hospitals, in police stations, and so on and so forth. Not education, because all of this, um, all of these issues, obviously, also correspond to education. But the Ministry of Education takes care of that. So here we're talking about quite a new scenario for those of you who might be familiar with education in Peru, intercultural bilingual education. This is rather a new scenario because here we're talking about language rights across the whole of society in public spaces, yeah, public services and so forth. A little bit of insight into the basic curriculum for the course. Um, Again, there's quite a lot of basic stuff that has to get taught, taught in, the, in the basic course. There's a, a great vari- variability in the educational level of the, one, of the people who come onto the course. People from Amazonian um, communities, especially the ones that live more remotely, tend to come with less, of, um, a, a less educational qualifications. Maybe they finished high school, but they may not have a, a further, further education. However, they're the ones that probably all sort of get balances out. They probably speak their languages better, you know, less influence of Spanish, and more sort of solid knowledge of their language, and maybe they also have more knowledge of their traditional culture. So in making the selection of the people to take part in the course, all these things are taken into consideration. Very often, uh, the people who take part in the course have come from the indigenous organisations. They're nominated by them. It's not just a single individual's decision. Oh, I think I'll go off to Lima and do this course. You, there's a whole <coughs> consultation process in your organisation. You get nominated, you get sent. It's, a, it's an honour, but it's also a huge responsibility. Um, do they get funding to cover their yes, costs? Yes, their costs are all... Yes. The first six courses were all conducted in Lima, so as you can imagine, that was quite neat. There was a budget, though, from the, from the ministry to cover everything. The courses are very intensive over three weeks. So, and that's a big thing, you know, they've got to be able, and especially in the case of women, you know, they've got to be able to absent themselves from home, leave their children behind and so on and so forth. That, that also creates some difficulties sometimes. Um... So, quite a lot of basic stuff gets covered in terms of um, kind of revising ba- the basics of writing Spanish, spelling, all this sort of thing. But then they, ha- they get into um, workshops on interpretation and translation. Uh, a lot of attention is paid to the professional, eth- professional ethics and protocol of the inter- how to conduct um, an interpreting um, process. Um, there's theory, techniques of documentation and terminology. Part of what they have to train to do is establish glossaries so that all the technical language that they're coming across, for example, in prior consultations, you can imagine, they've got to try and establish um, common ground and ways of uh, translating, I don't know. One, one word uh, recently that somebody was tussling with was hidrovia amazonica, the Amazonian hydro root and they were trying to work out how to say that in their own languages then these words need you know they need to establish glossaries that can then be drawn on in the future so you don't have to reinvent the wheel that's a key part of their activity <coughs> they also have specialist um, workshops on the law on the convenio 169 um, also on writing languages i'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute the ones that i've highlighted in red with red numbers are the the, oh, the three modules which were taught by an indigenous person who spoke an indigenous language. The others, are, at that stage at least, were, own, were all taught by uh, people who only actually spoke Spanish. So the techniques of interpreting and translating 
um, we're very, it was all very theoretical, kind of generic techniques, and then you have to apply them to your own language. On the one hand, that's understandable because you've got a room full of people, probably about seven or eight different languages represented, so it's a bit difficult to, if you speak Aymara or Quechua, you can talk about that, but you can't talk about all the other languages. But on the other hand, um, I think you know, the, 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 the people in the indigenous languages office are aware that this is a, something that needs to be addressed. And as more and more students are coming through, graduating from the courses, and some of them are achieving very, becoming very proficient in, in this particular skill, they are now uh, you know, hopefully going to become trainers themselves, and they're going to be more into in, in indigenous people involved in the actual training. <coughs> there are just some photos um, with my two colleagues, Raquel and Luis. We um, had the opportunity to observe a full training course, three-week training course down in Kiliabamba, near, near the city of Cusco, um, last summer. It was quite an odyssey. <laughs> Um, um, and the people who on the training course came from Matsuge. These people in this group here are from the Matsugenga-speaking communities kind of east of Kiribamba, the upper Urubamba. Um, these people are Quechua-speaking uh, women from Apurimac. From, yeah, um, these are speakers of Quechua from the central highlands. So they speak a variety of Quechua known as Quechua Chanka. This is some of you are probably aware that Quechua languages are very diverse, quite different. And here we've got a little bit of the production of the work from the workshops. And the guy on the left was a very um, uh, you know, great minority in the group, there were two of them, who were speakers of Karakumbut, which is a highly endangered language from the Madre de Dios um, department. And who, who didn't, who who really had a lot of difficulty at the beginning because they had no way of writing their language and didn't really know how to write it. So the facilitators had to work with them in lots of discussions on how they, you know, the agreements that they come to, come to in their organisation on alphabets. So um, in addition to the training course, the, the Indigenous Languages Office is doing a lot in terms of public education raising people's awareness of the issues around language rights and also just telling people about the in, in enormous linguistic diversity of their own country, of which many people aren't that aware. And so this is a really nice um, table and I can, I can let you have copies of this material if you're interested because I, I realise it's not easy to read it in way of sitting perhaps. But it gives you numbers, estimated numbers of the speakers. Um, it gives you... Um, well, names of some of the main groups. And it also gives you some of the articles from the law and some, some statistics on percentages of speakers according to the regions of the country. So, so far, I've illustrated some of the actions being taken by the Peruvian state to address discrimination and inequality of treatment towards indigenous people on the basis of language identity by legislative means. But now, I want to have a look at the type of experience this training offers the indigenous participants themselves. So I've actually written a text here, which I'll um, read, and then I'm going to show you a couple of testimonies on the screen. So for the moment, the screen isn't important. <laughs> Firstly, the training courses provide an opportunity for indigenous peoples and speakers of indigenous languages, and that is not always the same thing, indigenous people and speakers of indigenous languages it's not always, always the same thing to come together to learn about each other create lasting networks of solidarity 
sharing of expertise and friendship. And the value of this cannot be overstated. I've just got a quote here from one of the participants. And he said uh, in an interview, describing his first night on the training course, Entonces nos presentaron en la noche ya todos los participantes. Nos presentamos ahí cada uno en su, lengua, en su idioma originario. Y ese momento fue importante porque quizás nosotros en el sur solo conocemos idioma aymara, quechua y castellano. A veces quizás hemos escuchado a Wapun, Shipibo por informaciones nada más, pero uno no sabe. Entonces, en ese momento fue felicidad porque encontrarnos con hermanos de 14 idiomas hablantes fue chocante para nosotros. ¿Dónde estuvieron ellos? 47 idiomas originarios y nosotros nada, no conocemos. So he's describing the fact that he's evidently an, um, an Andean, probably Quechua speaker from the south of the country, who knows something about Aymara, Quechua, and, and, um, and Spanish, the main languages he hears in his environment, and he's only heard rough references to other languages like Awahum and Shipibo. So suddenly he comes to this training course and in that particular one, I think it might have been the third, I can't remember now, there were 14 different languages represented in a group of about 45 people. And that's, a, that's a lot to cope with <laughs> from the teacher's point of view. Um, but he said it was quite a shock to find out about all these different languages that people were speaking. Where had they been all this time? Donde estuvieron ellos? 47 indigenous languages and we, hadn't, we didn't know anything about them. So it's like a revelation. Okay. As the trainees gained confidence and through training and began to network with each other, they developed a clear view. Processes could work in favour of their own empowerment through language rights activism as a form of political action. In this respect, the agenda of the state in the shape of the DLI, Indigenous Languages Office, team, and that of the Indigenous trainees converged to us. The DLI began to take more and more actions to educate the public about language rights through public events and media coverage, for example. And the trainees, uh, or the graduates, would take part in these actions as spokespeople for the state, but then later on, when they went back to their regions, they would engage in further activity, often independent of the state, and in collaboration with their organisations. We see that translator and interpreter training in indigenous languages as a project of the Ministry of Culture is quite dissimilar from training that takes place in the higher education sector in relation to globally influential languages, for example, Spanish and Chinese, Spanish and English, French, Arabic, and so forth. Firstly, the socio-cultural and policy frameworks are quite different. As you might expect, the most, the most successful of the trainees, once they graduate, make demands for indigenous languages to be incorporated into the curricula of the higher education programs. And I, I, I suspect that this will gradually happen now um, for the more widely spoken of the indigenous languages. But as things stand, there's a clear distinction between the two contexts and types of training, and this yet again can be seen as discriminatory, at least from the indigenous people's point of view. Um, secondly, translation and interpreting in indigenous languages requires the languages to be written down, especially to learn. Written forms of the vast numbers of Peru's Amerindian languages have only recently been developed and there is still some instability around the decisions that have been taken on standardising the languages. The, this process of standardisation was led by the Ministry of, of Education. 
The many interested parties in what alphabet shall we use, civil servants, teachers, indigenous leaders, the general populace, often disagree on language standardisation. And these disagreements expose the cracks between different ideological positions. Rather than serving the revitalisation of languages, alphabets become highly charged political symbols, and tensions around how to write one's language may signal attitudes of dominance towards one's neighbour, who speaks the same language, but whose different dialect was not chosen as a basis for the writing system. So th these problems all emerge in the process of the interpreter training. And the trainers from the Indigenous Languages Office get very hot under the collar because they didn't come there to, teach, to talk to them about language standardisation. They want to get on with the job of training them to be interpreters and translators. But they keep coming across this sort of stumbling block. And, well, one of the pieces of polite advice they're giving in their ear is that actually they need to grasp the, the horns of this particular dilemma and, and work it out with them, rather than pretending it's, you know, it's a, for another moment. Right. Um, another point. This is all to do with how... The how my points here are to do with how the training of interpreters and um, translators is different when it's a matter of training indigenous people in their languages to when it's um, a matter of training people in their mainstream languages. It is certainly an emancipatory process. It's a process that allows indigenous people, whether or not members of political organisations, to feel a sense of value attached to aspects of their identity often discriminated against in Spanish domin dominant spaces. Their languages, values, clothing and customs become a focus of attention, a valued medium of self-expression and a feature of the discourse of rights. So with these points in mind, and there are more, but I'm trying to run now, let's focus on the key question again. Are the processes arising from the implementation of language rights legislation truly emancipatory, or are we witnessing new articulations of hegemony? How much of the public relations activity emanating from the state is fine rhetoric that does not mean much change in social attitudes and behaviours in practice? How much of the interpreter-translator activity as promoters of indigenous language rights can really help to shift entrenched structures of power and the ideologies that underpin them? For example, we might characterise such activities as running indigenous languages workshops at the Feria Internacional de Libro, the International Book Fair in Lima, which the trainees have now been doing for a couple of years, as folklorising or essentialising. But then, as Spivak has con convincingly argued, essentialism can be a necessary strategic mechanism when culturally different groups seek to assert their presence within the state, claim rights and benefit from what the state has to offer on their own terms. Essentialism may be an in inevitable part of the identity poli politics needed to achieve pluralistic approaches to policy in such fields as education, health and law. While essentialism might be seen as a process of self-representation that leads to inauthenticity from an outsider's perspective, from the subjective vantage point, it can entail an empowering form of collective reflection on identity and cultural positioning within the larger social field. And something of this is certainly seen among the trainees on the courses we're looking at here. To some extent, these processes are not, they're not sort of a panacea. They're not going to overturn the structures that are existing overnight. Nonetheless, it's a very important gradual step in the right direction. 
And to give you an example of some of the problems that still surface, I'm just going to give you another, another quote here. So my reading of many of the testimonies coming from urban Ketra speakers confirm that we are indeed witnessing a new articulation of hegemony insofar as, despite the rhetoric of language rights as an inclusive ideal, a sense of superiority on the part of the urban-dwelling Spanish Quechua bilingual towards the more predominantly Quechua speakers in the countryside persists. Now, this distinction, of course, has been well researched and documented by Marisol de la Cadena for Cusco. One interviewee, uh, an urban bilingual from Huaraz, was commenting on the injustice of asking Quechua speakers who needed an interpreter in a court of law to pay for the service themselves. What interests me in this extract is the way she refers to the rural um, dwelling speakers. Her tone reminds us of how empowerment can give rise to a sense of superiority with regard to those who have not become so empowered. She says, Me parece aberrante. Digo que estamos fracturando económicamente a nuestros hermanos del campo para que nos puedan, para poderles cumplir un derecho. Siempre digo, por eso, no subyuguemos a los intereses del Estado a nuestros hermanos del campo, más bien que el Estado se subyugue a los intereses de nuestros hermanos del campo. Porque favor que nos que hacen nuestros hermanos del campo a preservar una cultura al fomentar el uso de las lenguas. This is about a bilingual speaker who's saying this, but she's very much speaking from a kind of urban perspective. Her, her and just briefly to translate, we're um, break, economically breaking our brothers in the countryside by asking them to pay for their own interpreting services in order that they should um, have their rights fulfilled. <laughs> so it does seem a bit contradictory. I agree with her on that point. Subordinate our brothers in the countryside to the interests of the state. Um, rather, um, the state should subordinate its interests to our brothers in the countryside. In other words, the state should be doing everything it can to facilitate this right to an interpreter rather than asking the people who need the interpreter to pay for the services themselves. After all, she says, our brothers in the countryside are doing us, are doing us a favour, <laughs> preserving their culture and, and encouraging the use of their languages. <laughs> A very, there's a very kind of paradoxical um, discourse going on here which would deserve quite a lot of detailed um, analysis. Her reiteration of the expression, our brothers in the countryside, suggests a mix of condescension and a somewhat forced expression of solidarity. More, more than anything, to my mind, it expresses a new articulation of hegemony across the sharply felt divide between self-differentiating sectors of the Quechua-speaking population. Hegemony does not only construct symbolic power differentials between indigenous and non-indigenous, but also distinctions within the indigenous Quechua's language, the indigenous language-speaking sectors themselves. And there's plentiful, plentiful further evidence of that. Okay, um, so I hope to have given you a flavour of what the research project is about. I don't have any conclusions to offer you, but please do. <laughs> that's a bit of a get out clause. Um, please do sign the, the piece of paper that's going around so that if you'd like to see our website, um, we can send you the link. And then um, slowly but surely, we will have some publications posted there. And in the meanwhile, there's plenty more information in that. It's quite a nice sort of gateway into information about. Um, linguistic diversity in Peru. Thank you very much. <laughs>